always reminded on days like today how much of a blessing it is that we have been given so many uh, among us that can help lead us in our worship. Uh, I'm no substitute for our brother Mike, and I'm grateful for the women of our church who can play the piano and help accompany our worship with music, including our sweet sister Carol here this morning. So thank you for that, as well as our brother Mike, who probably won't hear this, but I'm still grateful. So with this in mind, then, brothers and sisters, let us turn in God's word to Genesis chapter 19. Uh, we'll begin this chapter by looking at the first 11 verses. And while you're turning here, you may already know that this morning we come to a familiar chapter of world history, because it's in this chapter we read of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, while this story is common, we also know it's quite controversial. And it often comes up in discussions of the condition of the world that we live in today. Some of you may know that Billy Graham once wrote about his wife. He said, some years ago, my wife Ruth was reading the draft of a book I was writing. And when she finished a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods such as technology and sex, she startled me by exclaiming, if God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You may feel very similarly. But as the years continue to pass in our nation, what I want us to consider this morning is what we can learn from Sodom and Gomorrah, which is why over the next three weeks we will be looking more closely at this chapter. So let us then read the first part of this chapter this morning and consider the first 11 verses, Genesis 19, again, verses 1 to 11. Now that two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled lot into the house with them and shut the door. 
And he struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Now, as we continue, brothers and sisters, let us pray once more to our God. Father, this morning we turn our attention to very dark days in the history of humanity. And we pray that as we wrestle with your word, that we will come away as those who learn from the tragic history of those who live in sin against you. And that we ourselves, through this spiritual darkness, will see the beauty and the glory of the light of Christ. Because it's through the darkness, Father, that the light shines brightly. And so we ask that this will not be a message, a time where we hear of doom and gloom. But this is a time where we will recognize your holiness, your righteousness, your justice, and also your love and your mercy and your patience. Father, we pray then that you will be with all of us, that we will hear your word as you empower the preaching and ministry of your word through the Holy Spirit in each one of our minds and hearts. And we ask this time will be richly blessed so that those among us who do not yet know Christ will come to know him even this morning. And that those of us who do know Christ will rejoice and all that we have in Him as we magnify His name and worship Him with our whole soul and body. Father, we pray these things then in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, what do these opening verses reveal to us this morning? It's very simple. Beware of the world's depravity. Beware of the world's depravity. And this warning is given to us in this passage through three truths that come out in what takes place. First, we read of God's involvement with the world or God's involvement in the world. Second, God's opponents from the world. And then third, God's protection amidst the world. So if you like taking notes or recording the outline, God's involvement in the world, God's opponents from the world, and finally God's protection amidst the world. But let's begin in verses 1 to 3 by considering God's involvement in the world. Uh, we are here in the book of Genesis, and as 
this book of Holy Scripture begins. Humanity rebels against God in sin and lives under God's curse in judgment. Which is why God then calls a man out from sinful humanity so that He will bless the nations through a promise of salvation from the wrath of God that sinful humanity deserves. So this man, Abraham, and his family leave their country and their people and their family so they will then enter into a covenant with God. And it's in this covenant that God promises Abraham the land of Canaan and a multitude of descendants. And he guarantees then to carry out these promises through the covenant that Abraham, that God makes with Abraham. And in response, Abraham then must keep this covenant through receiving the sign of circumcision, both for him and his descendants. You may remember Abraham and his wife Sarah were not the only ones to leave their homeland of Ur. Well, going with them were their nephew Lot, who also joined in their family as they journeyed towards the promised land. But do you remember what happened? Over time, God had so richly blessed them that once they entered into this land, Lot separates from Abraham by heading east so that he can enjoy the worldly riches. We read of this back in Genesis 13. If you turn back just a few pages there, Genesis 13, verses 10 to 13, this is what we read there as this separation happens. We read, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked, and sinful against the Lord. So then as we come to chapter 18, God appears together with two angels as men to personally witness this wickedness and this sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah before he judges them. And as he comes to Abraham, God shares a covenant meal with Abraham before he goes on to investigate Sodom's sinfulness to render a right and just verdict against them. It's here that Abraham then intercedes for the righteous of Sodom and Gomorrah, praying for mercy and justice showing both his compassion for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as his righteousness in recognizing the justice in God's punishment for the wicked. So as this chapter begins, we see the two angels leaving Abraham and continuing on to go to Sodom. But I want you to recognize that Chapter 18 and chapter 19 are meant to be compared and contrasted. 
Because here we have two different men and they're meeting these divine messengers. We have Abraham's meeting the God with the two angels in chapter 18, following by now Lot meeting these divine messengers here in chapter 19. And we'll see these parallels throughout the chapter. You can flip back and forth for yourselves between these opening verses to compare these connections. First, in chapter 18, you see that these men come to Abraham in the heat of the day. But in chapter 19, where do the two come from? Or come, when, when do they come? They come in the evening. In chapter 18, Abraham is sitting. And he's sitting at the tent door. But in chapter 19, Lot is also sitting. But where is he sitting? He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. In chapter 18, Abraham runs to meet them and bows himself to the ground. And what do we see in chapter 19? Lot rises to meet them and bows himself with his face to the ground. In chapter 18, Abraham offers them hospitality to eat a morsel of bread so they may refresh their hearts. And now in chapter 19, we see Lot offering them hospitality to spend the night and wash their feet. Even here, then, you can see these connections, but also some contrasts. In chapter 18, we see God himself coming with these two angels as men to visit Abraham. But here in chapter 19, it's only the two angels. And in chapter 18, Abraham recognizes his guests and worships God. While Lot here in chapter 19 seems not to recognize who they are and treats them as regular guests. There's many other comparisons we could make, but the point here of Genesis is to contrast these two men and to see how they are living in this world. So as chapter 19 begins, Lot offers these two angels who have arrived as men an invitation into his house to spend the night and be refreshed before continuing on their journey in the morning. But don't miss the significance of Lot's request. Where was Lot? Lot was at the gate of the city. And notice where he invites them. He says to them there in verse 2, Please turn into your servant's house. That's significant. Abraham is staying outside the city, living in a tent as he wanders throughout the land. But Lot has moved out of his tent, and he's moved into the city to settle there. He's sitting in the gate of the city, which is where the life of the city takes place. It's the very center of the city, and the gate is the symbol of the authority and the power that is there. This gate is where the leaders would meet and make decisions for the city. The gate is where the official city proclamations were given. Lot then has fully integrated, become one with the city of Sodom. Do you see then how Lot has become comfortable with the wickedness that was surrounding him? 
He wasn't concerned about where he was living, but he was enjoying the lifestyle that he had in Sodom. And so as he makes this request of the two men to stay with him, at first they refuse because they want to stay in the open square of the city to witness for themselves how those in Sodom were living. But Lot wouldn't allow it. He knew well what would happen if these visitors stayed in the square. Nighttime is when the wickedness often comes out to play. And Lot knew the visitors, these guests, would not be treated well. So he hopes that they can avoid this sin by inviting them in the evening and then sending them away early in the morning before anybody else will even know they're there. That's why Lot here doesn't take no for an answer. And he invites them in. And so they turn in and enter his house and he shares a meal with them again as Abraham did. But there are differences. What was the meal that Abraham made for God? It was a banquet of fine cakes and meat and milk and butter. But what is this meal? It's a feast of unleavened bread. The quickness of this meal contrasts with the great effort to which Abraham offers his meal before them. So here, as we reflect upon these opening verses, what do we see? That God is the sovereign Lord and judge of this world. And he came down to earth with two angels because he is righteous and just, and he sends them on to Sodom, so they will serve as two witnesses of the city's great sinfulness and wickedness. We see then, even in these first verses, how much God cares for his creation, and how he himself is personally involved in this world, which is why we should never live as if God doesn't exist, or as if God will not judge the wickedness of this world. None of us will escape his judgment for how we live, which is why we need this reminder from history. But not only do we see here then God's involvement in the world, but we go on in verses 4 to 9 to read of God's opponents from the world. You see, these angels didn't need to go to the center of the city to see the sinfulness of Sodom, did they? The sinfulness of Sodom came to them as the men of the city surround Lot's house. And look at how widespread their wickedness is. This is not a few out-of-control troublemakers in the city. But both young, old and young, all the people from every quarter surround the house. They all see an opportunity here to indulge their sinful lusts. And in verse 5, we hear then why they have gathered around Lot's house. They demand to have sex with the angels who have appeared as men. What then is their wicked request? 
It's homosexual gang rape. There is no more any holding back on their depraved desires. And the men of the city have fully given in to their perverted passions. But I recognize in the day in which we live to even suggest that homosexual desires are unnatural and sinful is a challenge for us to uphold today. We'll be seen as narrow-minded and bigoted, which is why a number of Christians today, a growing number of Christians will argue we should not read this demand in this way. And they'll even appeal to other scripture. For example, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. There we read, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So according to this verse, they will say their sin wasn't homosexual behavior. It was pride. And the wickedness of Sodom is found in their refusal to extend hospitality to these visitors or in their desire to rape these visitors, not in their homosexual desires. But this is a twisting of the teaching of Scripture to make it acceptable to our culture. And it compromises God's word to avoid confronting homosexuals with their sinfulness and their need for Christ. We have to read what happens here in this chapter through the larger history that has already been revealed in Genesis. Once God creates men and women in his own image. He unites our first parents, Adam and Eve, in marriage to show all of humanity how men and women are to relate to each other. So we read in Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this covenant union of marriage is God's created purpose for a man and a woman to then join together and enjoy the gift of sex. But once humanity falls into sin, we quickly see how we abuse this gift in pride and in selfishness. And as our sin spreads through the world, so the perversity of our sexual desires increase in sin. You see, since sin begins in the heart and works its way outward, so pride has taken place there in the people of Sodom and has now worked its way outward to the sexual perversion of homosexuality. Which is why they have cast off any moral restraint of right and wrong, and they are living now as slaves of their sinful lusts. This is why the word here literally at the end of verse 5 is that we may know them. Some of your translations may have another word for know. This word refers to the intimacy, the love, the communion that one is to have. 
And that's true of this knowledge within God's covenant. But now we see how much this gift of God is twisted and corrupted. Because outside of his covenant in Sodom, it's now so compromised that this knowledge has come to mean violation, exploitation, and brutality. They have then degraded the goodness of sexual intimacy in marriage to become mere perverted physical pleasure. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 1. You can turn with me to Romans 1, verses 24 to 27, because Paul here writes of this downward spiral of sinful depravity as it continues to take place in the world through history. So this isn't only a problem for Sodom. This is what happens whenever sin continues to grow in perversity as it consumes us in wickedness. So Romans 1, verses 24 to 27. Paul writes, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So, brothers and sisters, we need to speak the truth in love about the unnatural sinfulness of homosexuality, of homosexual desires and behavior. Since God created us to live as men and women who become one in marriage to enjoy our union of sexual intimacy, it is out of our love for homosexuals, not out of hatred or fear of homosexuals, that we must share with them the goodness of God's design and warn them of the dangers of living outside of God's plan in a lifestyle of sin. God knows what is best for us. And so we have a responsibility in love to share with others what is best for them. But the reality is, in our sin, we usually don't want to hear what is best for us. And that's so often what we see today, especially in this issue. But it kind of reminds me of how loving it can be to give news that's hard for someone to accept. Everyone here knows about my daughter and her treatment for leukemia. She's been taking chemo pills and chemo medicine now for over a couple of years. But here's 
what she continues to tell us. It's not helpful, Daddy. It makes me feel worse. Nothing's changed. It's hard. There's no reason I need to take this. See, from her perspective, this medicine is not good for her. It's not helping her. And so she wants to refuse it. But what do I do as her loving father? Because I know what's best for her. I know what's good for her. That her leukemia will only go into remission. And she will only live a healthy and full life by taking this medicine. And so it's because of my love for her that I remind her and encourage her and at times even almost force her to take the medicine. Because she needs that medicine to be healthy. And we, as those who've been created in the image of God, must live according to God's word as men and women so that we will live healthy lives that are best for our souls. So we have this wicked, sinful request then of these men. How then does Lot respond to their sinful request? Does he call them to repentance? No. Look at how he refers to them. He says to them in verse 6, My brethren! Think about that. Lot identifies as one of them. And what does James 4.4 remind us of? That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So once again, we have a contrast here, don't we, between Abraham and Lot. Abraham is called a friend of God. But Lot has become a friend of the world. Now, he does recognize their wickedness, right? That's what he goes on to say. Do not do so wickedly. He wants to uphold then some kind of right and wrong. But Lot is more concerned at this point with protecting his guests than he is about caring for his family. And so Lot does the unthinkable. And he himself makes a wicked counteroffer. He says, take my two virgin daughters and do with them whatever you want. Wow. As a father of three daughters myself, I can't even imagine this kind of reaction. It's almost impossible for me to understand this kind of betrayal. Yet we see how quickly that we can compromise with the world when things become difficult. And we can rationalize sin for the sake of supposedly avoiding greater sin. And so Lot is willing for his daughters to be violated 
So these two men will stay safe. Of course, how do they respond? This sinful world isn't interested in compromising with us. So Lot's offer falls on deaf ears and enrages the men of Sodom. One minute, they're brothers. But the next minute, they dismiss him as a stranger. They say, this one came in to stay here. They don't even give his name. So they say, he keeps acting as judge. See, when we try to win the world's approval, or when we try to please the culture, this alliance will only last as long as it is convenient for them. And so they are ready to break down the door here, and they're ready to take what they want by force. Which is why they rebuke Lot for judging their wickedness. Does this sound familiar today? What are, what are, what are the men of Sodom saying? Who are you to judge me? Isn't that exactly what they're saying? Who are you, stranger, to judge me? So it's becoming quite violent at this point. And since Lot will not hand these men over, we see that he's going to join them in being sexually abused by the men of the city. Since he won't hand them over, we find the men of the city then entering into his house or pressing against him to enter his house so that he can take advantage then. They can take advantage of the three of them. You know, as I think about this passage, what I'm reminded of is how tempting and easy it is then for us to become comfortable in the sinful world. That's what we found throughout these verses with Abraham, or not with Abraham, with Lot. And with Lot, rather than living in this world like Abraham as pilgrims who are waiting for God to then bring us to our heavenly home, we live in this world much more like Lot, as those who have settled in this world as our home and pursuing the pleasures that it offers. And we foolishly think that the poison of this world we can simply avoid. But we must never forget that this sin-filled world is opposed to God and will come under his judgments. So we begin then here by seeing God's involvement in the world and then continue to have seen God's opponents from the world. But now we begin to have a ray of hope. A ray of light bursts into this darkness in verses 10 to 11, where we read of God's protection amidst the world. See, at this point, the mob violence has simply gotten out of control. And Lot is overwhelmed. He can't do anything to stop them. He himself is about to suffer through their perverted lusts. But these angels have had enough. And they rescue Lot by pulling him back into this, his house, back through the door. 
And in doing so, Lot's eyes are opened. See how utterly empty his life in this wicked city is. Here he learns that these are not any ordinary men, but these are messengers who have been sent by God himself. Do you see then how our hope in the midst of this sin-cursed world is not found in ourselves and what we can do to restore the righteousness of this world and to end the wickedness of this world? That's the foolishness that Lot seemed to have. But our hope is found in relying on God and trusting in Him to care for and protect His people. Now, while we may have to endure sin and suffering in this world, we know this, that God will keep our souls safe in Christ until we can internally enjoy life with Him in a restored and renewed world that will be set free from all sin. This, then, is our great hope, because this is our home, our heavenly home. With God, and God will protect us until we reach our heavenly home, until we receive our heavenly home. And finally, as these verses come to a close, we see that in protecting Lot and his family, these two angels also punish the men of Sodom by striking them with blindness so they cannot continue this assault. And it didn't matter what size they were whether they were small or great. God's power through the angels simply overwhelms them. But notice even here, as verse 11 ends, how sin never gives up. Even after they are struck with blindness, these men are still trying to find the door. They're still trying to feed their lustful appetites. They've lost their senses, but their appetite for sin remains. So, brothers and sisters, do you then see this great warning that God gives us through these verses? Beware of the world's depravity. Beware of the world's depravity. Because we all face the danger of worldly corruption, which will keep us from Christ or will compromise our faith in Christ. And without Christ, listen, we are no different than the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, while we may not have spiraled down to their level of depravity, we share the same sinful human hearts who live in rebellion against God. That's the very reason why God gives this promise of salvation to us. It's the promise of salvation that Abraham believed in by faith. And it's the promise we too receive when we believe in God's promise of salvation from the judgment of God that we deserve. And it's why God himself then enters into this world as the person of Jesus Christ to take our place, 
This is why Jesus lives the life of righteousness that we refuse to live in sin. And why he then takes the very punishment of God we deserve upon himself as he dies under the curse of God on the cross. He is then raised from the dead with the resurrection life, triumphing over the very curse of death and sin. So that we too then will receive this life in him as our sins are forgiven, as his righteousness becomes our own, as we are reconciled with God and are being renewed until we will finally come home to live with him forever. This is the hope of the gospel. So if this is not your hope this morning, Turn away from your sins in repentance and turn to Christ by faith. Look to Christ alone as the one who saves sinners like you and me. Through sacrificing himself in love. So that our lives are not lived under the judgment of God for our sins. But our lives are lived through the strength that the Spirit provides us. Repent and receive your salvation in Christ. Let's turn to another passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, to receive some important words for us to all here this morning. Because this hope is for all of us, including for those who have the same sinful hearts as those wicked men in Sodom. First Corinthians nine, or sorry, First Corinthians six, verses nine to eleven. Let us hear these words. Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Listen to this great promise. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And when we have been washed, when we have been made holy in sanctification, when we have been justified and declared righteous before God, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, how do we then live? Skip down to verses 18 to 20. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit 
which are God's. We live then out the salvation we have in Jesus Christ differently from the world because the Holy Spirit now dwells in us and we are the temple of God. But the time that we live in seems more and more like the time that Lot lived in, doesn't it? And the world's depravity surrounds us much as it did Lot. Which is why we must beware of the same compromise we can make as Christians. You know, back in 1989, a book was released. It's not a well-known book, but it is a very successful book. The book is titled After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. And this book was authored by two men, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen, who bring together the insights of psychiatry as well as public relations expertise to devise a strategy for there to be growing acceptance of homosexuality in our nation. Now, Vodi Bakum summarizes this as he says, this strategy for success comes through three phases. Listen to these phases. First, you have desensitizing. Second, there is jamming. And third, and finally, there is conversion. So think about this. First, desensitizing. That we need to get people used to seeing homosexuality. So we need to bombard us then through the media, through TV, through movies, through music, through the arts, through education. You desensitize people to the wickedness of homosexuality. Second, reduce what they say the psychic rewards, which means that those who oppose homosexuality become seen as bigots. And then opposition to homosexuality becomes costly. That's what it means to jam or jamming the opposition. So first, desensitizing, second, jamming, and third, conversion. And conversion is when people become allies of homosexuality, where they identify homosexuals as oppressed minorities who need equal rights. Does this sound familiar to you? It's certainly what has taken place over the last several decades in our nation. But here's the question I want us to ask ourselves. Have we become comfortable with the sexual perversion of our society? See, the danger to our souls is not merely that there is sin out there in the world, but it's first the sin that remains in here, in our hearts, when we love the world and the things of the world. So we desire to then compromise with the world for the world's approval. That's why my mind keeps coming back to that warning from the Apostle Paul in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, where he warns 
us as Christians, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So the question that we all need to ask ourselves this morning is how are we living? Are we living as Abraham lived? In tents, in spiritual tents, because this world is not our home. But we are waiting eagerly for eternity with God in our heavenly home? Or are we living as Lot, who settled in this world as our home, with all of the compromise and all the worldly comforts that we temporarily gain? You know, Prince, uh, sorry, uh, Billy Graham's wife may have underestimated God's patience with us when she made her statement about America. But this I do know. God will punish this world for its wickedness and its sinfulness. Let us then not settle for the things of this world, but rejoice in Christ and the world to come that we will receive when he returns. Let us pray. Father, may we all have hearts of faith to receive these words of love from your hand. And if any of us are struggling this morning over what you have revealed, we pray that we will submit to your word rather than judge your word according to the standards of this world. May we be those who remain faithful, who do not live in this world as if it was our home. And as much as this world has become our home, Lord, we ask you forgive us. We confess these sins before you and pray that you will deliver us from such love of the world so that we will be those who look forward to the beautiful and glorious world to come where we will live forever with Christ. Father, we ask these things then in the name of our sovereign King, Jesus.